Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good evening and welcome to State of Minds from the University of California. Tonight we have four stories from the 10 campus system, each reflecting the university's commitment to research, teaching, and public service. From Santa Barbara, a profile of the Copley Institute for Theoretical Physics and its director, Nobel laureate David Gross. From San Francisco, using the Nintendo Wii to help people with Parkinson's regain their balance. And from Merced, a special commencement address for the pioneer Bobcats. But first, from UC Davis, a look at the drought in California and what UC researchers have learned about the impact on fish when scarce water is moved from the north to the south. Here's Paul Fotenhauer. California has always been thirsty for water. There simply isn't enough to go around. Northern California has it, the south and the central valley need it, and the fish and wildlife depend on it. Three years of drought in California has been costing California dearly. Richard Howard, an agricultural resource economist, says water restrictions could mean up to $800 million in lost income and force 25,000 people out of work in the San Joaquin and Tulare Valleys this year. It's devastating for the labor market in the valley. This is a labor market that doesn't have much leeway because they've been hit with the construction slow down for other sorts of manual laboring jobs and they're really reliant on these farm jobs particularly in these small communities. Despite spring rains California remains mired in a serious drought. Over the last three years our runoff has been very much below normal and the runoff is sort of the best indicator of where we're at in terms of a drought. Um, it's not just the rain and snow but over a whole year how much do you actually get in those river basins and two years ago the water year had 53 percent of normal last year 58 percent of normal runoff and our projection for this year is only 70 percent of normal so we're not working our way out of that hole. As the senior meteorologist for the state Lynn says no one can directly link this current drought to global climate change but it may be a sign of things to come. We'll look at the 10 to 20 to 30 year period and see if in that amount of time we were in drought more often than some other previous 10, 20, or 30 year period. But one of the things that the computer models do agree on across the world globally is that the southwestern part of the United States is very likely to get drier. Meanwhile, geologists at UC Davis are finding clues to climate change deep beneath the Sierra. In the past decade is really when we started moving from a shift from uh, what was really a marine dominated perspective to starting to look at terrestrial records and, and uh, caves, uh, stalagmites in particular, are probably the most faithful and most continuous records. Graduate student Jessica Oster is looking at the mineral traces left by thousands of years of water dripping in these caves. Stalagmites grow from the groundwater that trickles into the cave over millenniums. If what we observe in the past is um, going to hold true for today, then as the climate warms, we could expect to see it get drier here. These cave deposits are like climate clocks. Stalagmites are particularly useful because we can date them very accurately. For example, I know that just this part of the stalagmite represents 12,000 years of growth. So I can look back very far in time and I can get a very long-lived climate record. Results show that the climate in the Sierra is influenced by climate changes elsewhere. What happens climatically up in the high northern latitudes has a direct impact on our climate here. And if those two regions are connected, then they're connected by large-scale atmospheric processes. And that can be related then to climate change. 
The data from these stalagmites is tantalizing. It suggests that as Arctic ice sheets melt and disappear, it becomes drier here in California. Perhaps no one knows more about the importance of water to California's native fish than Peter Moyle. He warns that in this century, native salmon and trout could go extinct, and the current drought makes the problem all that more complex. It complicates it, but it also simplifies it in a sense because it makes it difficult to postpone decision making. Uh, if the stream flows are getting lower, you're stressing the fish more. And this UC Davis biologist says fish don't lie. I just completed a study of the state of the salmon and trout in California. And I found that 65% of them are in serious decline. And many of them are already listed by state and federal governments as endangered uh, or threatened. And these are the species that require the high quality cold water. He has been studying California's native fish population for more than 30 years. And he says saving the fish is a matter of better management. Improving the way we manage cold water streams that, that don't have um, dams on them or small dams by reducing diversions, for example. Uh, by better management of the, the state and federal fish hatcheries that release salmon into the ocean. There's a whole array of things that could be done. Managing California's water delivery system is as complex as it can get. In the Central Valley, the Delta is like a massive railroad switching yard. Snowmelt from the mountains brings water down rivers to reservoirs that in turn empty into a Delta system that provides drinking water to millions of people and water to irrigate farmland. So how does the state move water from north to south? It all begins here near Tracy, where 11 pumps move on average 3 million acre feet of water a year into a canal that goes hundreds of miles to the south. That's the equivalent of the amount of water needed to fill Folsom Lake three times in a year. But most of the land here in the Delta near San Francisco is kept artificially dry by more than 1,000 miles of levees that are beginning to crumble. The levees in the Delta are, many of them are not very reliable and increasingly unreliable into the long term, particularly with earthquakes and, and increasing floods with climate change. So in the long run, we have to think of something different to do with water exports. And we think that in the long term, you really are dr driven to one of two strategies either ending exports entirely or having some type of a peripheral canal. Lunn is part of a team of scientists from UC Davis and the nonprofit Public Policy Institute of California that says a peripheral canal is the least expensive, most environmentally positive way to repair the delta while maintaining water exports. I think it allows more of the environmental problems to be solved. One of the chief problems we have with the delta environmentally now is that we're managing the delta for water supply. Whereas if you have a peripheral canal, you can now remanage the delta for environmental purposes. You've sort of disentangled this, this set of conflicting uh, purposes. The best thing for the fish in the San Francisco estuary, in the delta, is to stop diversions altogether, as well as to reduce diver upstream diversions. We know that's not likely to happen uh, because of all the economic considerations. Therefore, if, you, if we continue to divert water from the delta, which means taking Sacramento River water, pumping it across the delta, the best thing for the ecosystem is probably the peripheral canal. Despite the difficulties facing California, Howitt says the state has the ability to adapt to a drier climate. My studies show that if we can hold on to our share of exports, 
that despite the cuts in water, despite global climate change, and despite these other cost increases, the profitability and the value of agriculture and the jobs in agriculture can continue to grow even though the area and the water use cuts back. Farmers, scientists, and policymakers know that all sides must come together around a plan that can support California through the challenge of global climate change. Paul Fotenauer, reporting from Davis. Now to UC San Francisco, where the patients of Glenna Dowling are playing video games for therapy. Shippa Shukla explains. From a very young age, Glenna Dowling, the department chair of physiological nursing at UCSF, seemed destined for a career in medicine. I always knew from the time I was a little kid that I wanted to, to be a professional of some sort or other. I was the kid who brought the sheep brains home in eighth grade, much to my mother's chagrin when she comes home to sheep brains on the kitchen counter. Get them out of here, you can have them in the garage, but you can't have them in the kitchen. So, and, and I always knew that I wanted to do something with older people and with the brain. I always knew that I would never know everything there was to know about the brain. Older people have always been a really important part of my life. I value older people, and I think one of my contributions really is to sort of help people view older people differently. And one way she is doing that is by modifying a popular video game to help her patients stay active and independent. A lot of the people that I deal with clinically and in research have Parkinson's disease, which, as you may know, causes significant gait and balance problems. So these, these folks they're, tend to be older and they're really at risk for falling. He's from Red Hill Studio. And so one of my passions over the years has been to, with my colleagues, develop and test a gait and balance training program specifically tailored to the sorts of deficits that people with Parkinson's disease experience. And so we recently received some NIH funding to adapt the Nintendo Wii platform to develop a series of games so that people can do it whenever they want. They don't have to leave home. We, we'd like to develop a dual player version eventually so that you know people could play with their grandkids or their partners or whatever. Dowling finds that her best ideas for innovative uses of technology often come when she's away from the clinic. Well, driving the race car pushes me to a different level. It's not unlike what I'm doing in my research with Parkinson's disease, modifying the Nintendo Wii platform to um, help people with Parkinson's um, get better gait and balance. So when they play the games, it forces them to push themselves to a different level. We all need more in our life than work and the ability to be creative, to, to be open to new ideas comes oftentimes from outside work. Science is often as much serendipity as anything else, and if you're not out there kind of being open to what you might not have thought of, you can miss a lot of things. At UCSF's Mission Bay campus, I'm Shipra Shukla. Next, down the coast to Santa Barbara, where Jerry Roberts catches up with David Gross, the Nobel Prize winner who runs KITP. The Kavli Institute of Theoretical Physics at the University of California, Santa Barbara, is the most important international scientific research center you've probably never heard of. Known in the physics community as KITP, the institute is nestled in a Michael Graves-designed building a hundred yards from a splendid stretch of the Pacific Ocean. 
With a small full-time faculty, KITP each year attracts a thousand of the world's most innovative scientists to UCSB. They come for the chance to collaborate and study the most urgent questions in science about the nature of everything. That's the condition where it says that the sum of angles of the, the given polygon is constant independent of the shape. The driving force of KITP is Dr. David Gross, its director and a world-renowned theoretical physicist. One of the uh, former visiting researchers said this about the Kavli Institute. Coming to Santa Barbara as a KITP scholar is like joining a brotherhood in a place of worship. <laughs> the physicist that is as Jerusalem is to the Jews or as Mecca is to Muslims with David Gross as custodian of the Holy Shrine. Oh, my God. What is it about the Institute that would make a sober-minded, hard science guy talk with such rapture? <laughs> well, I'm, I must say I'm intrigued by the uh, religious comparisons. Um, I, um, when asked by my colleagues after I came here, what is it like to be a director? That must be awful. I said, I said, no, this, uh, being the director of the KITP is like being a uh, captain of the love boat. Everyone is happy. So I only have to deal uh, with very happy people because scientists like to do science. We invite of the order of a thousand scientists a year to come and spend months weeks here uh, doing what they really love to do, which is talking about science and working on the frontiers of science with their colleagues. And they love it. Gross credits a quartet of UCSB physicists for the Institute's vision. In 1979, they pulled off a stunning coup when the National Science Foundation selected UCSB over Princeton, Harvard, Stanford, and other top institutions to house a new national center of theoretical physics that would appeal to scientists from multiple fields. Dr. James Hartle was one of the gang of four. Even that long ago, it was clear that physics was changing, right? That it was becoming um, less isolated in individual disciplines of astrophysics, particle physics, and so forth, but there were more connections between them. Uh, and so we thought it would be a good idea to have uh, a, an institute that would foster those connections and thus, thus move theoretical physics forward on a very broad front. In, in talking about theoretical physics, there's often a references to, to an elegant theory. There's yes. something's an elegant theory. What is the role of elegance in, in theoretical physics? Um, it's hard to define beauty, elegance, but it's one of these things you know when you see it. But you have to see it with mathematical eyes again. And often a good guide to um, trying to understand nature at a more profound level. For whatever reason, uh, it has been the experience of science, and especially of physics, over the last centuries that when we truly understand something, uh, the explanation, the equations, the theory is often exquisitely beautiful. So it's a good guide if you're working and you're on an idea that isn't beautiful and is ugly, it, you, uh, it's probably not right either. <laughs> One elegant idea discovered by Dr. Gross centered on behavior of energy within quarks among the smallest particles of matter. That idea led to research and eventually to the 2004 Nobel Prize in Physics.
You have this uh, baseball hat on one of your shelves here. It says, <laughs> Gross the Strong Force, which, of course, <laughs> as we all know, is one of the four uh, major forces of nature. Uh, uh, tell me the story of that hat. Where did that come from, and what is it a reference to? <laughs> when you go to uh, Stockholm, you get to invite members of your family and friends and so on. And, and I had about 19 people in my party. And my daughter decided we needed some identification. <laughs> the Nobel laureate says that the agenda for research at KITP is shaped by the world community of scientists. There are questions about the early history of the universe. How did it all begin? And how did structure, galaxies, planets, uh, emerge from uh, the Big Bang? There are questions about uh, the fundamental laws of physics. Can we unify all the forces together? Can we uh, understand gravity? Um, can, there are questions um, about the structure of quantum materials at the nanoscale. Um, the Institute's focus on the horizons of science, combined with the quality of its researchers, also brings top graduate students to Santa Barbara like Fiona Burrell, a graduate fellow from Princeton. I've gotten to meet a lot of sort of the prominent people in my field and kind of when they're here for a while, it's much more relaxed. So it's not like, you know, you have sort of one hour to talk to someone the way that you do if you have a visiting seminar speaker. You really have, you know, a few weeks to get to know them, talk to them over tea, whatever, have lunch and all this kind of stuff. So I think that that's sort of what's really special about um, KITP that you don't get at a, at a typical graduate school. Let me ask you one more question. Are there limits to how much we can know about the universe? Yeah, I'm often asked that in, when I give public lectures, uh, especially when I talk about some of these very difficult problems like how did the universe begin? Maybe there are limits to what, what we can know, especially in those areas of fundamental physics. I think if we were getting to the point where we were beginning to get close to the limits of our capabilities, we would start noticing that young students beginning to learn a subject like physics or mathematics would take longer and longer to get to the point where they could make contributions. It's like climbing an ever and ever steeper mountain. You'd begin to notice it. And that's not the case. I mean, it's still the case that brilliant minds can, by the early 20s, have learned enough of everything that we've learned over the last few hundred years and be ready to start going strong and continue to make pro increasing progress. So I see no sign that we're nearing impossible questions, uh, nearing the limits of our capabilities. It might be the case, but there's no evidence of that yet. Well, Dr. David Gross, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank it was you. a pleasure. Thank you. If you'd like to see more of Jerry's interview with David Gross, we'll have it on our website at uctv.tv. Finally tonight, UC Merced. We first visited this Central Valley campus when it was under construction in 2004. We later returned to meet some students and hear about their adventures in breaking in this new public university. Well, that pioneer class graduated last month and was given a very special send-off by the First Lady of the United States. Here are some highlights from the 2009 commencement.
class of 2009. You, our pioneering students, helped write the first chapter of UC Merced's history by choosing to embark on this new venture. And you are part of history in the making today. This day brims with a promise of new beginnings. I can think of no better place for the First Lady's first commencement address than you see said. As the first graduating class, and you've given this campus a richness which will survive generation after generation. Uh, you had a dream to, to graduate from here and go on with your lives. Um, but Californians had a dream, and Central Valley people had a dream that this would be another great campus of the University of California, and it is. Thank you so much, class of 2009. A few people may be wondering, why did I choose the University of California Merced to deliver my first commencement speech as First Lady. Well, let me tell you something. The answer is simple. You inspired me. You touched me. You know, there are a few things that are more rewarding than to watch young people recognize that they have the power to make their dreams come true, and you did just that. Uh, your perseverance and creativity were on full display in your efforts to bring me here to Merced for this wonderful occasion. So let me tell you what you did. If you don't know, parents, because some of you were involved, my office received thousands of letters and, of course, Valentine's cards uh, from students, each and every one of them, so filled with hope and enthusiasm. It moved not just me, but my entire staff. They came up to me and said, Michelle, you have to do this. You, you have to go here. But I understand that this type of uh, community-based letter writing campaign isn't unique to me. This community, this Merced community employed the same strategy to help get the University of California to build the new campus here in Merced. Every school kid in the entire county, I understand, sent a postcard to the UC Board of Regents in order to convince them to select Merced. And I just love the fact that some of the graduates sitting in this audience today participating were involved in that campaign as well, and then they used the same strategy to get me here. That is amazing. And what it demonstrates is the power of many voices coming together to make something wonderful happen. And I'm telling you, next year's graduation speech, you bet, speaker better watch out because Merced students know how to get what they want. <laughs> this type of activism and optimism speaks volumes about the students here, the faculty, then staff, but also about the character and history of Merced a town built by laborers and immigrants from all over the world, early settlers who came here as pioneers and trailblazers in the late 1800s as part of the gold rush and built the churches and businesses and schools that exist 
African Americans who escaped slavery and the racism of the South to work on the railways as truck drivers up and down Route 99, Mexican Americans who traveled north to find work on the farms and have since become the backbone of our agricultural industry, Asian Americans who arrived in San Francisco and have slowly branched out to become a part of the community in the San Joaquin Valley. Merced's makeup may have changed over the years, but its values and character have not. Long, hot days filled with hard work by generations of men and women of all races who wanted an opportunity to build a better life for their children and their grandchildren. Hardworking folks who believe that access to a good education would be their building blocks to a brighter future. And as the students who helped build this school, I ask you, make your legacy a lasting one. Dream big. Think broadly about your life. And please, make giving back to your community a part of that vision. Take the same hope and optimism, the hard work and tenacity that brought you to this point, and carry that with you for the rest of your life in whatever you choose to do. As you step out into that big open world and you start building your lives, the truth is that you will face tough times. You will certainly have doubts. Let me tell you because I know I did when I was your age. There will be days when you will worry about whether you're really up for the challenge. Maybe some of you already feel a little of that right now. Maybe you're wondering, am I smart enough? Do I really belong? Can I live up to all those expectations that everyone has of me? And there may be moments when you just want to quit. But in those moments, those inevitable moments, I urge you to think about this day. Look around you. Look around you. There are thousands and thousands of hardworking people who've helped you get to this point. Hold on to the hope that brought you here today, the hope of laborers and immigrants, settlers and slaves, whose blood and sweat built this community and made it possible for you to sit in these seats. There are a lot of people in your lives who know a little something about the power of hope, don't we parents and grandparents? Look, I know a little something about the power of hope. My husband knows a little something about the power of hope. You are the hope of Merced and of this nation and be the realization of our dreams and the hope for the next generation. We believe in you. Thank you so much and good luck. God bless you all. That's our program for tonight. We'll be back in the fall with more from the University of California. Until then, thank you for being with us. I'm Shannon Bradley. Good night. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.